Let's go to the Lord in prayer, brothers and sisters. Father in heaven, God, you are holy. And God, to your name be the glory. Lord, uh, we draw near to you this evening, God, not in our own goodness, not in our own strength, not because we have any right to be here. That's apart from Jesus Christ, Lord. We thank you so much, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, you are triune and majestic and amazing and worthy of worship and worthy of study and worthy of obsession and worthy of praise in every manner, Lord. And I just pray that your name would be lifted high here amongst us, that you would be hallowed here in this church and in our lives, God, and that you would be glorified this evening in all that we say, all that we do, the way that we hear the word preached, Lord, the way that we study and evaluate your word and have it penetrate and have it impact our lives, Lord. I pray that all of that would be in a way that's humble, a way that's only possible by your Holy Spirit, Lord. God, I pray that you would continue to meet the needs of this body of believers here, Father. There's many that are suffering. There's many that are um, going through difficult things, as well as many whose family members and friends are going through difficult things. We hear about in our church there in the group chat, Lord, the many things that are taking place. God, I just pray that you'd comfort each one individually as they need to be comforted today, especially as we consider this topic of the resurrection, Lord. As we consider the comfort that we can gain through the resurrection, God. And it's an amazing truth. It's an amazing thing that is so very far beyond what we ever deserve to know or hope that we ever deserve to have, Lord. But thank you so much for the grace you've given us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Thank you that we have an amazing hope of resurrection and life because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, God. Father, I thank you that you do, even though we look to eternity, we look to resurrection. You do, Father, you do provide all of our needs here. You meet the needs materially. You meet the needs spiritually. You, need, you meet our needs in many ways, God. And we thank you that you're the kind of God who knows what we need before we ever ask it. You know what we need before we ever speak a word about it, Lord. And thank you that you do, in fact, hear us. And each one of us now can, even on our own, pray, Lord, for the things that we require, that we desire sometimes, that we need in order to fulfill our calling to live for you and to glorify you, the basic needs that you've promised to meet for us, Lord. We thank you so much for that. And we thank you that you, you provide for us abundantly beyond that we, what we could ever imagine or what we could ever um, have deserved, Lord. I pray that this church would be a beacon and a light in a dark world, Lord, that we'd be shining missionally, that we would be people who have our eyes fixed on eternity and therefore are drawing other people into your plan, God, and your purpose and your will and what you've, what you've spoken to us in your word, God. I pray that we'd continue to support the work of missions, and I pray that you'd bless all the missionaries that our church prays for and supports. I also pray tonight for the Pritchards. It's a blessing to see them all smiling in the picture that they sent us, Lord. I pray that you would bless them, keep them, help their family to be strong, and this season to be fruitful, and that they would bear much fruit in their work and their time there, Lord. And Father, there's many other things we could pray for tonight. Um, God, I pray for the Middle East. I pray for the turmoil and strife that some people are saying sounds threatening to become a war beyond the scope that anyone could have thought. Lord, I pray that you would keep peace in our world, Lord, in whatever manner you can and will. Lord, we thank you that you are in control. Even when <clears throat> Christians are suffering, even when death and despair is taking place in that area of the world, Lord, I pray that we would have a consciousness and an awareness that you're in control and that we are not in control. We don't have the power. We don't have the wisdom to govern this world. But you, O oh Lord, have planned it. You know what's going to take place. And you know where this is headed, Father. 
And please glorify your name through it all. God, once again, as we come now to opening the word of God, Lord, your holy word, I pray that your spirit, the spirit that wrote and spoke these words, would now again be active in our hearts and our lives to help us hear, to help us understand, to give us illumination, to give us joy as we receive the word preached, to give us an accurate view of things and an accurate view of your word, God. I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so this evening our text is John 11, verse 1 to 44. John 11, verse 1 to 44. So we'll be looking at the fifth of Jesus' I am sayings today. And it will be, I am the resurrection and the life. So, so far we've seen that Jesus is the bread of life. We've seen that he's the light of the world, the door, and the good shepherd. And in tonight's text... um, This is a very well-known account in the Gospel of John regarding Jesus' miracle of resurrecting his friend Lazarus from the dead. And so in in the book of John, this sign, this raising of Lazarus serves a, a point where this is actually, like I talked about in a previous sermon, the point where the Jews become hardened towards Jesus and officially try to decide to kill him at that point. And it is also a sign that most clearly out of all the signs in this book, speak to the resurrection reality, the truth of the resurrection that we know as Christians to be the case. And so, though we will be looking at this at a specific uh, text, uh, verses 25 to 26, I also want to let you know that we'll be looking at the whole passage in its context and trying to help us understand this truth regarding Jesus Christ being the resurrection and the life. And so verses 25 and 26 will kind of be our, our focus. I'll quickly read those. And then we'll go back and read the whole thing. So, Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Turn now to John 11 and we'll read those verses together. This is the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town, of Mary, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going to go there again? And Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world, But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And these things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sake that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And then Martha As soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Count not this man who opened the eyes of the blind. All, can, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. This is the reading of God's word. The resurrection is a teaching that is of first importance in Christianity. Of first importance. It is essential. Without it, there's no gospel. Without it, there's no comfort at all. Without it, there's no hope whatsoever. In the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a famous document from the Dutch Reformation, which is a document known for its passionate pastoral um, teaching on who God is and about the Christian life, this emphasis on hope and comfort of the resurrection is an essential part of the very first point of the very first, do- of the very first question and answer in this document. The catechism question and answer asks a student of God's word, and it says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And then the student is supposed to answer and say, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. In body and soul, and in life and in death, a Christian belongs to their faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot more to that answer in the actual thing, but that first line, just it really emphasizes this emphasis on resurrection that we're talking about tonight. So several wise Christians got together to contribute to this document, to approve of it, and then countless many more throughout history have also um, affirmed it and believed in it. And so there's some parts that we as Baptists would not agree with, maybe, but at the core, this, this question is very helpful, this answer. They all agreed that a primary concern regarding the comfort of the Christian life, what is my only comfort in the Christian life? A primary concern is that we belong both body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So the reality is this teaching can only say that body and soul in life and in death if the biblical teaching of the resurrection is true. If what we're talking about here about Jesus being the resurrection and the life is true, that's the only way you can say that you belong to Jesus Christ, your faithful Savior in death, that your body, even once you die, and in in eternity belongs to him. And so for the rest of this sermon, with that as our introduction, we will now further consider that Jesus Christ being the resurrection and the life means that Christians can have resurrection comfort in both life and in death. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we have this hope. So this evening, I want you all to understand that Christians can live and die with resurrection comfort. You 
You can live and die with resurrection comfort, brother or sister. And it's an incredible truth that we can learn tonight from the Bible. We'll, we'll discuss this in four points, beginning with the first. You can live and die with resurrection comfort even in the midst of a suffering world. Even in the midst of a suffering world. So the Bible clearly teaches a doctrine of, of resurrection, right? It clearly teaches this. Why? Because in case you missed it, Lazarus was raised up from the dead in our passage tonight. It's a clear teaching, and it's taught many other places. It's a core biblical thing, and it's here in our text tonight. But something interesting about this is, before you can have resurrection joy, right? Before you can experience resurrection, before you can see a man raised from the dead, first there must be sorrow. First there must be pain. First there must be death. So in a roundabout way, us studying the resurrection tonight and the fact that Jesus is the resurrection actually also reminds us of the fact that the world has death and suffering in it. Right? Lazarus dies. His loved ones cry. There's death and suffering in this world. Same thing we experience, right? Our loved ones die. We will die. There's death and suffering in this world. These are the prerequisites for a resurrection miracle to take place. If there was no death, if there was no pain, if there was no sin, there would never be a need for a resurrection. So in Eden, God warned. This is why. This is why the world is the way it is. In Eden, God warned that if they disobeyed Him, they would surely die. And indeed, they did. Death became absolutely certain. And since then, our whole experience is tainted by death and pain. Our entire human experience is tainted in this way. In light of this tragic reality, it is a tremendous comfort for us to know this biblical reality that the resurrection meets us in this world of suffering and death. It meets us in this world. Jesus Christ, God our Father, have made this a part of our world. That's something that we can be comforted by. This doctrine, this teaching of the resurrection of Scripture. So we learn here in this resurrection account that our suffering has a purpose. Right? That's how the resurrection meets us as comfort in this suffering world. It has a purpose. There's meaning to it. When we suffer, it's not meaningless. It's not pointless. And this point is illuminated in verse 4. Let's read verses 3 and 4 together. It says, Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but it's for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus teaches that this hardship and this trial that they were under would not be meaningless. This moment would have a greater purpose. Namely, for the glory of God and so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Right? This is not a purposeless, meaningless existence. This death and suffering in the world is not devoid of any purpose. It's in fact pointing towards and going to lead towards the greatest purpose, which is that God would be glorified through it. And in addition... As it relates to us as people, in verses 14 and 15, it says, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sake that I was not there. And this is the other purpose, that you may believe. That you may believe. So because of this death taking place, and then later this resurrection as a response, the possibility, the purpose of us believing, of these people in this passage believing, is made a reality. So with this purpose in view, we see that as the death and resurrection of Lazarus encouraged the believers in Bethany and glorified God, in the same way the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ should serve as our daily comfort, should serve as our daily encouragement, should serve as something that is constantly reminding us and encouraging us and pointing us in the right direction. This is so real and this is so relevant to us these purposes, that God would be glorified, that through resurrection teaching, through the fact that there is such a thing as a resurrection, there is actually going to be belief stirred up, belief brought into your and my heart. That's a possibility as God is using suffering. He's using hardship in the world to those ends. And we see it very clearly in this text. I want you to know that it's really only through belief in the resurrection 
It's really only that in this belief, in this acknowledgement, that we can have our perspective shifted to see the purpose of God and the centrality of God in everything that goes on, in every suffering and hardship that we endure. Without resurrection comfort and hope, then we would succumb to the total sense of meaninglessness and futility that this life naturally leads to. If we did not have this teaching of the resurrection, if we didn't have Jesus Christ rising from the grave or Him using His power to raise Lazarus, we would not have any hope in this life. But now, because resurrection uh, comfort meets us in this suffering world, regardless of the loss, regardless of the depth of the suffering that we may endure, and some of us have suffered grievous things in our life, Because of the resurrection, we can honestly say in the same way that Jesus said that Lazarus' illness will not lead to death. In the same way, whatever you're going through, whatever hardship you're in, whatever trial, no matter how deep and dark it might be, if you're in Christ, will not lead to death. It's an unbelievable fact for us to consider. So another way to find resurrection comfort as those who are in the midst of a suffering world, is by looking to Jesus Christ, right? To look at Jesus Christ the way He's portrayed for us here in this passage. To get a view of that, let's look at verses 33 to 36. There it says, Therefore when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, He groaned in the Spirit and was troubled. And He said, Where have you laid Him? And they said to Him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So we see here that the God-man Jesus Christ, our Lord, he's not distant from suffering. He himself suffers. He himself actually weeps here in this short passage. Our Savior suffers and he weeps And he groans in this world just like you do. Just like I do. It is because the perfect Lamb of God wept and suffered that the life and comfort that he has won, that he has made possible, can also be possible for us. It's because he lived this life. It's because he came and became a man. He became a man and suffered. Not only here crying because his friend died, but this shows us the ordinary levels of suffering He went through, the same things we go through, but also because He ends up suffering and dying on the cross. And amazingly, this weeping that Jesus is doing here, in the original text, in the, in the Greek, it's, it's not just an ordinary sadness that we're dealing with here. It's not an ordinary sadness. There's a sense of anger in Jesus' disposition. It is a deep, angry grief towards sin and Satan and death in the world. In this same disposition of angry grief towards sin and death and Satan's work in the world, that's in that same disposition that Jesus goes to the cross and He conquers as the resurrection and the life. Because of what He did there, death no longer has any sting. Instead of hearing that they will surely die, for Christians, instead, death will surely die. Right? This is unbelievable. Death will surely die. So what an example Jesus Christ is and what a comfort He is in this suffering world that He came and in this disposition, in His becoming a man and living in this life and enduring the types of things that He never should have endured as the, as the perfect God but humbling Himself and coming down to suffer and die on the cross for our sins. What an amazing comfort that is in a suffering world. And that's all possible through this teaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ rising from the grave and conquering death, conquering Satan, conquering suffering, conquering all of these things that come come upon us. So Now we've seen that you can live and die with resurrection comfort in the midst of a suffering world. We also are going to see that you can live and die with resurrection because you can gain an accurate assessment of things. Okay, When we study this, when we study this passage, when we know Jesus Christ, we can gain an accurate assessment of things. 
In understanding who Jesus is and what he has come to do as the resurrection and the life, we can finally have an accurate assessment of our lives. We can finally see things clearly for what they really are. When we believe in our hearts the truth of Romans 1 verse 4, it says, Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. In that moment, if you believe that, in that moment truly in your heart, in your spirit, if you truly put your trust in that as a reality, if you believe that, then you suddenly gain the right pair of glasses with which to view the world. You suddenly gain an accurate assessment of things. You can see things accurately for the first time, which before you never could. How often would it not spare us so much difficulty if we just look at things through the biblical point of view, through God's eyes, through His accurate assessment of things? So let's see a pair of the ways that this resurrection comfort, this resurrection reality gives us an accurate assessment of things. One of them is that the resurrection gives us an accurate assessment to understand that this physical life is fleeting. It teaches us that this physical life is fleeting. How do I know? Well, the fact is in our text tonight, Lazarus died. But in, then he even gets raised up and guess what happened to him after that? He died again. Lazarus died twice. He got a double taste of what fleetingness in life is like. Each of us will probably only get a one-time taste unless Christ comes back sooner than that. But you have to understand that His resurrection, the fact that He got raised from the dead, was not an end in itself. Hopefully you've been realizing that as I've been talking already. It wasn't an end in itself, but served as a sign to signify a greater and enduring resurrection on the last day. To show us something greater, to look farther ahead. To remind us that this life is actually temporary. He died two times. So temporary was it. We want to look to the next life. We need to realize that this life is fleeting. So we've already seen that we live in a suffering and dying world. And we've seen that this world is decaying every day because of what happened in the garden, because of sin, our sin, Adam and Eve's sin. Everything and everyone in the world is dying. This is properly characterized as the land of dying. Okay, that's a good way to look at earth. Earth is a land of dying. It's not a land of living right now. For eternity, it's a land of dying. Because biblically speaking, eternal life was supposed to be the norm. Dying is not the norm. Dying is not what we expect to see. But because of sin, there's now a land of dying. So listen to what Calvin has to say about the fleeting nature of life. He says, If heaven is our home, what is earth but our place of exile? If departure from this world is entrance into life, what is this world but a grave? If being liberated from the body means laying hold of real freedom, what is the body but a prison? So let's accurately assess the world like Calvin does. He talks about the world as a place of exile, the world as a grave, the world as a prison. Sad reality is we don't often do this. We don't often assess the world accurately. And even though this world is wasting away, because of that, we are constantly being tempted to make this life ultimate and to keep clinging to it, right? Constantly. Everyone is constantly begging you to make this world ultimate. They're asking you to make idols of your health, of your life, of your possessions. These things are all dust. These things are all dust. This life is fleeting. We need an accurate assessment of this. And the resurrection gives us that assessment. Let's lift our eyes off of this world and onto the eternal life, onto the resurrection. If we do this, our hearts will be comforted. I promise you, Christian, if your heart is not comforted, if your heart is filled with sorrow, if your heart is broken, if you think about the next life more, if you think about the resurrection reality more, your heart will be comforted. Why? Because your soul was not created to rest in this world. If you're thinking about this world constantly and having idols and, and your mind is constantly wrapped up with those things, then of course you're not going to be comforted. Of course you're not going to be lifted up. But in fact, if you look to the next life, if you look at this resurrection truth, the fact that there's a new and eternal life because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, you'll be comforted. And you'll realize what it is to rest in your Savior. 
to grow in that, to grow in true relationship with Him. So we've seen that this life is fleeting. We accurately assessed it. It's fleeting, and we should not, we should not put our treasure in our heart and our life in this life. We should think about eternity because of the resurrection comfort that it brings. But we also look at this fact that in a similar way, the resurrection also gives us an accurate assessment to understand that death is not permanent. Death isn't permanent. Just like life is fleeting, death is not permanent. Our text teaches that death is only sleeping for those who die in Christ. An amazing thought. Read verses 11 to 14 with me. Death is only sleeping for Christians. If I could find it, that would be awesome. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I will, may, may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. And Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And to set them straight. So death is only sleeping for Christians. Death is temporary then, right? Death is not an eternal reality for a Christian then. If death is only sleeping, this, um, this text is basically teaching us, and this is throughout the Old Testament and the New, that um, sleeping is used in relation to saints dying because it speaks about the impermanence of their state. It speaks about it being impermanent that they died. For a Christian, you could really say death is like taking a short nap. Just a short nap. That's all it is. It's not, an, it's not even a long sleep. It's just a short little while you'll be dead and then you'll be alive for eternity. So in verse 23, with great confidence, Jesus declares, your brother will rise again. And here he means that Lazarus will rise in this life. But the actual thing we should take to heart and apply to our life is that the same confidence that Lazarus, their brother, will rise again from his short nap, from his sleep, is the same confidence that we should have if we have our faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ has this confidence that we will rise again. We will rise again in a spiritual sense first and then in an eternal sense again at the last day of the resurrection. And this is also an amazing comfort. This resurrection comfort is not only just nice for us to be comforted in our own soul, but it's also very comforting when a, when a loved one dies, right? Someone who's in Christ, someone who we love, someone who we care about has passed on and we'll never see them again in this life. What an amazing resurrection comfort it is that they will also rise again if they were in Christ. If they put their faith and their trust in Him, they will also rise again. So frankly, one way to think about it is that this teaching of the resurrection, this resurrection comfort actually makes a person death-proof. You're death-proof. If you're in Christ, you're death-proof. So if the Spirit of Christ lives within you, you are sealed from death and destruction eternally. You will not face the second death. You will not face hell. Death is not permanent. There is no form of death for a Christian that's permanent. What a comfort that is. What a comfort that is to our souls. Our impermanent, struggling, temporary selves. Not souls. Our souls are not impermanent. They'll be going on for a long time. All right, so the midst, in the midst, we've seen that you can live and die with resurrection comfort in the midst of a suffering world, and also that this gives you an accurate assessment of things. But now let's see that you can live and die with resurrection comfort because it reaches beyond human understanding. This resurrection fact, this resurrection truth, it reaches beyond what our fickle little human minds can ever wrap our minds around, whatever we can comprehend. And this is seen um, in uh, the text here in verse 17. So look at verse 17. It says, So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Lazarus had been dead for four days. And this emphasizes the radical and miraculous nature of the resurrection and of this miracle. But also in another sense, it, it shows the lack of faith or the lack of, uh, of Godward focus or the lack of belief in what God can do in the people who are around, right? The people had no hope. The people had no hope that they would see Lazarus again at this point because for a person to be dead four days and be raised was beyond human understanding. Now, admittedly, one of the women here does say, she does say, 
well, he will raise again at the last day. So she had some faith in that, but she didn't believe that he could do it here and now in the right in front of her face kind of situation. And this is a little bit surprising because Jesus had also raised other people from the dead in his ministry. For instance, in Mark 5, he raises Jairus' daughter. And in Luke 7, he raises the widow's son. So they really should have believed this. Even though it had been four days, they should have believed this. But nonetheless, human understanding, human wisdom, human knowledge, the way humans look at things, and when it comes to things that are supernatural like the resurrection, is to just write it off, to not believe in it. Now, Lazarus' case is also very unique and helpful apologetically, as long, along with Jesus' case, of course, because Jesus was dead for three days. But the skeptic mind, the human understanding, might wrongly, but nonetheless, they probably will, presuppose that when Jesus raised up Jairus' daughter or the widow's son, he maybe just lifted them out of a coma. He maybe just, you know, that's what they're going to say to kind of twist the Scriptures or to make it less supernatural. That he did not raise these people from the dead. They were just in a coma and he came and did something to wake them up or to help them come back into consciousness. But not so for Lazarus. He was dead for seven days. For him to be, or four days. He was dead for four days. So for him to be raised would be way beyond the human capacity to understand or to believe. And we see this again emphasized in verse 39. In verse 39 it says that, Therefore, they sought again to seize him. Oh, that's the wrong, uh, hold on. 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him, excuse me. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. There's a stench, for he has been dead four days. So again, she comes and she says, no, human reason does not comprehend Jesus' work in resurrection. In fact, Humans avoid it. They, want to, they don't want to put their trust there. It's, it seems unnatural to them. It seems impossible to them. They're not able to believe in it. But in verse 40, Jesus tells her that if she would believe it, if she would believe in this reality, though it's beyond her comprehension, though she warns him and says, this is very concerning. He's going to stink. He's so rotten and he's so dead. He's been dead for four days. Jesus says, if you will believe this, in verse 40, if you will just believe this, then you will get to see the glory of God. So trusting God with faith leads to seeing the glory of God. The reality is, like I've said already, our human minds and our daily experience know nothing except death and decay. From birth to old age, we're on a path to a certain death. And since this is all that we have ever seen, it can become our most all-encompassing thing to our natural and unspiritual mind. It can become the main thing in our life, the fact that we will die. The Bible teaches that people are held captive by the fear of death. And this means that they're either avoiding it constantly, trying not to die, or they do everything in their power to protect against it. They're doing all these things in their life to hopefully not die, or they're not doing any of those things and they're just living in total anxiety and chaos because humans are inevitably going to die. So for a mere human understanding of things, people who don't believe in the resurrection, people who don't believe in the power of God, insurance, better security on your house, improving medical technology, all of these things, these become the source of your refuge from the fear of death. And not surprisingly in a fearful world, on a different note, in a fearful world, we're not surprised to see that people would much rather listen to health and wealth and prosperity preaching that helps them have confidence in this life than listen to this kind of preaching about the next life, right? This kind of preaching about the resurrection life. You see that it's everywhere. It's everywhere in our human experience that people are subject to the fear of death They're captive to it, and it's become this all-encompassing thing for their human understanding. Just like those people there. They couldn't understand how could there be a resurrection? How could there be any hope through all of this? And so they thought with this worldly mindset. Thankfully, though, preserving this life, though our natural inclination, our natural unspiritual human mind, our natural response is to preserve this life and to um, not believe in the resurrection, and to not trust in the resurrection promises. 
We are thankful that the resurrection teaching and the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit's work in our life can help us to push past the boundaries of our human understanding, our limits, our natural, unspiritual view of looking at it. We're able to find real and lasting comfort and to escape from the snare of the devil, to escape from the fear of death that he's got us trapped in if we're someone who's living trapped in all these things. And I'm not saying, don't mishear me and hear that I'm saying that life insurance is bad or that health care is bad or any of those things. I'm not saying anything about that. I'm not making a comment about that. I'm telling you the fact that people are obsessed with these things means they're trying to avoid this fear of death. They're desperately trying to make life last longer in a world where life does not last long. Right? That's what they're desperately trying to do. For us as Christians, the daily battle of faith is to look to a hope that eyes cannot see. To look beyond he's been dead for four days. To look beyond the fact that the stone is closed in on Jesus' grave. To look beyond the fact that the stone is closed in on Lazarus' grave. We must look past and understand that the resurrection takes us past the mere limits of our human, natural, unspiritual understanding. So the skeptic, what I want you to think about is this too. The skeptic, the person who doesn't believe in resurrection, the person who doesn't believe in eternity, the person who is an atheist or denies the resurrection, trusts in their own understanding. They're a very inconsistent person. Really they are. Because at the end of the day, can you imagine trying to be happy with thoughts like that? With a belief system like that? How could you possibly be happy? These people are much more happy than they should be. I would be the most miserable person on earth, the most depressed and, and devoid of joy and all comfort if that was the way I looked at things. But I'm not because there is a great purpose. There is a great hope because this resurrection doctrine, this resurrection teaching of Scripture is true. There's hope for a new life. There's hope for eternal life. So why be so wise in your own understanding, in your own natural view of things, as to keep yourself from living in the joy and the comfort of the resurrection? Why would you do that, brother or sister? Why? Have you ever, have you guys ever thought about how ridiculous it is? I'm talking about this atheist or this skeptical person and um, try to meet a person like that with love and explain things as well as I can and everything like that. But have you ever thought about how ridiculous, how stupid it is that you can hand somebody a book and say, hey buddy, this book says that you can have everlasting life. You can have life that lasts forever. You can have intimate fellowship with God that lasts into eternity. You can have fullness of comfort and resurrection joy forever. Have you ever thought about how stupid it is that some people open this book up and read it wanting it to not be true? Like, come on. They read it wanting it to not be true. It's a crazy thought. You should at the very least want it to be true. No? Is that so unreasonable to ask? You should at the very least be like, give it to me and I'm going to see if it is. Because man, if I could live forever and be filled with purpose and resurrection comfort, I mean, it doesn't hurt. It's only like a thousand something pages. I've been watching Netflix all the time and doing all kinds of nonsense. I might as well read this and see if that's true. You, You get what I'm saying? It's a crazy thing. The human understanding is insane apart from the resurrection, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from the teaching that God has given us here. So lay aside such unbelief and instead of trusting only in what our eyes can see and what our human minds can comprehend, why not instead agree with the Word of God which allows you to live and die with resurrection comfort? Why not say with the Apostle Paul, we do not look at the things which are seen but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary but the things which are not seen are eternal. And you can see the implications of this are immense. The implications for this are crazy if you think about missions, if you think about kingdom work. The implications are tremendous. All of a sudden, people have a great incentive to lay down some really well-paying job or lay down um, some comfortable life in a comfortable country 
Because all they're going to be doing when they go out to do missions, when they go to serve in the kingdom, when they go to live life fully surrendered and casting down all things for God, all they're going to be doing is trading in a little temporary life, some temporary things that their human understanding used to think were the most important, and they're going to go and get infinite resurrection treasure in exchange for that. It's a tremendous implication. This is a tremendous motivation for us to lay down our life, take up our cross daily, Count the cost. Run for Jesus Christ with the fullest and the fullness that you can. Because we have this amazing gift. The resurrection comfort. The resurrection truth. This life is short. It's temporary. Our human mind is always trying to mislead us. You have this amazing offer in Scripture that says, lay down this life. Lay down this life and go find life that lasts forever. You're not going to miss much promise you, you're not going to miss much. There's not actually that much to be missed in this life. What are you going to miss? There's not that much to be missed. If you lay down your whole life, cast everything aside, and run obsessively and fully and committedly after Jesus Christ, what are you going to miss here? You're going to miss some football games, maybe? I don't know. You're going to miss... Maybe you might actually have to miss some work days. Maybe that's a good way to look at it, too. You know, you might have to go on a missions trip or something. But anyways, you're not going to miss anything here. There's nothing here to be missed. Run for eternity. Run for the Lord. Run for for eternity, brothers and sisters. So we've seen this this, uh, resurrection comfort meets us in the midst of suffering. Gives us an accurate assessment of things and it goes beyond our human understanding and beyond our limits, beyond our natural and spiritual thing, the way we view things. So lastly, you can live and die with resurrection comfort because the power of resurrection is already yours. Power of the resurrection. Same power that by the Holy Spirit raised Lazarus from the dead is already yours. Let's read verses 41 to 44 together. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. So here we see an image of the newness of life that is caused by the calling of the voice of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ says, Lazarus, come forth. That's the same call that the Holy Spirit gives in the calling of the gospel to each and every one of us if we're in Christ, if we're saved. That's that same calling that we receive. Christian, come forth. Become mine. Come to life. It's the same creative voice that calls Lazarus out of the grave here that created the world back in Genesis 1. Right? That same voice that creates new life. The Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing comes from the Word of God. And so this, this whole thing here is a picture of two things. We'll get to the second one in a second. But it's a picture of several things. Here it, it shows us that la- it's a picture that shows us of being born again. Lazarus is revived to actual life here. But this is a reality and a picture for our spiritual life. If you're a new creation, the resurrection is already a reality for you in the spiritual sense. You understand what I'm saying? You're, the, the faith, the hope, the life has been resurrected in you already. You are already going to live eternally. You're going to die temporarily, but your soul is already saved. You've already become a new creation. You've already got a taste of this resurrection reality. And that's why Paul brings this out very clearly in Romans 8. He says first in verse 11, he says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, spiritual reality, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So your mortal body will also receive life. You will have this resurrection reality later that's already an inner spiritual reality. And then he says later down in verse 23 and adds, We also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
as resurrection first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Redemption of our bodies. It's a resurrection hope. How many of us use that on a day-to-day basis in our Christian life? I'd like, you to, I'd like you to ponder that for a second. When you're feeling discouraged in your faith, how often do you think about the fact that you'll live forever and have a new body that doesn't have any... Like I just, sometimes that's just all I can think about. You know, if you're, in a, if you're in a difficult stage of life, you're in suffering or whatever you're in, sometimes you just have to think about the fact, man, there's a place coming because of my faith in Jesus Christ and my union with Him, where none of this hardship and trial and tribulation will exist. It's an incredible fact to think about, to ponder, to allow, to meditate on on our day-to-day life. And we don't do it nearly enough. We don't do it nearly enough to think that way. And that gives us this, this confidence. And it's only because the Holy Spirit is in our hearts as a first fruits, as a as a. As, as the Spirit that gives us life, that breathes life into us, that revives us and resurrected us spiritually already. So we've seen that Lazarus is an image uh, that speaks of new birth and resurrection, but he also displays the journey of sanctification. Him being raised up also shows sanctification. Sanctification is also known as that process by which we walk by the power of the Holy Spirit in this life and are transformed daily be more like Jesus Christ, right? As our filthy rags, our rotten grave clothes, all that rotten, stinky nonsense that's in our life gets stripped away. Because that stuff is an image of sin. That stuff is an image of our, of our darkness, of our old man that's needing to be laid aside, that's needing to be put away. Let's read about that in verse 44, the beginning of verse 44. It says, And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. He comes out. He's already alive, right? He's already resurrected. There's already new life in him because he's already walking out of there. But he's wrapped in all this tight-bound, gross stuff, probably dirty and stinky or whatever. I don't know, maybe not. I don't know how their embalming situation was at that point. But needless to say, it's an image of our sin. It's an image of the fact that when we have newness of life, we don't immediately start running in complete and utter perfect victory in every respect, conquering every single sin and having complete and utter dominion over it. We come out bound. So that's an image of our sanctification. But when we keep on pressing forward, we keep on by God's grace moving forward, It's like us being loosed. It says, loose him and let him go. We are spiritually raised, but that does not mean that all of our garbage and our baggage is instantly removed. For that, we have this time of sanctification, of intimate working with the Holy Spirit in this life because the resurrection is already ours. The resurrection power is already ours. So the same power that gave us spiritual life, that seed of faith that will grow, That same power is also the power that we need to use to fight sin, to resist the devil, to to push away and to to conquer and put our sin to death that's that's holding so tightly onto us. So brothers and sisters, we've now covered a lot of things. We've seen that we can live and die with resurrection comfort in the midst of a suffering world. Because you can gain an accurate assessment of things. Because it goes beyond your human understanding, beyond the limits of what your mind can comprehend. And because this resurrection power is already yours. It's already yours in the new life that you have if you're in Christ and also in the sanctification process that's taking place because of the Spirit's dwelling in you and you putting your sin to death. Now in conclusion, I want to speak directly to those people here who do not yet know the comfort of God and have not yet put their trust in Jesus Christ. I want to speak directly to you. Remember in verse 17, we saw that Lazarus has been dead for four days. His corpse was already rotting. He was dead, very dead. Now the fact of the matter is an unbeliever has not been dead for four days, but rather the Bible teaches that from the minute you're born into this sinful world, you're actually a dead being. You might be alive 
in a sense, but spiritually you're not alive. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says that unbelievers are described as dead in their trespasses and sins. Because of what happened to Adam, everyone who's born after Adam is born in sin. You've been dead. And if you're an unbeliever, you are dead. And regarding Lazarus's rotten corpse, one commentator said, he said, the statement that Lazarus had lain in the grave four days, four days already is of great importance for the understanding of this meaningful event. The sin which results in death, from which Jesus, by the exercise of his redemptive power, raises men to eternal life, is no temporary misfortune. It's no passing ailment. It's no sad accident, but rather it's a deep-seated malady that is perpetually corroding and disintegrating human life. That's what you are born into, brother or sister. And that's what you are in still if you're an unbeliever. You're in a state of sin. And that sin is no temporary misfortune, no passing ailment. It's no sad accident. It's a deep-seated malady perpetually corroding and disintegrating human life. Living in sin, without the power of the Holy Spirit, without this newness of life, sin literally constantly disintegrates, deteriorates, corrodes, destroys families, destroys lives, destroys your soul, kills you. It's destroying you. If you do not have Jesus Christ, if you do not have the life and the light, the resurrection comfort of Jesus Christ, you're on this trajectory and there's no other way out of it than by coming to our Savior tonight. So if you're not in Jesus Christ this, this evening, resurrection, this fact, what I've been talking about, everything I've been talking about, the resurrection comfort, it's not only not a comfort to you, but if you are not in Christ and you are at all conscious of this predicament of sin and darkness that I've been describing, then it should actually not be a comfort. It should be a great cause of concern. The fact that Jesus is raised from the dead and that there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The fact that that day is coming when even unbelievers will be resurrected, but they will be resurrected to judgment and eternal peril. The fact that that is happening and that that is a fact should not be comforting to you. It should be a tremendous cause of concern. Apart from Christ, resurrection will mean nothing to you. It will not give you comfort. You'll only be raised to judgment. You will not receive eternal life. You'll not receive any of this comfort I'm talking about in this life or in the next one. So hopefully after I said that, you're wondering, what do I do? What do I do now? If that's me and you're accepting and you're understanding that that's your predicament and you can acknowledge that, what do I do now? Well, what you do then is you repent of your sin. And then you make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and the resurrection power that He came to accomplish, much like is beautifully explained for us in the text tonight. You make a profession of Jesus Christ. You say, you first confess your sin and you turn from it. And in that moment, you say, yes, Lord, like Martha here. Yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. You make a profession of faith that Jesus Christ is who He said He is. You call out with your voice to the Lord God and He can and will save anyone, whosoever wills, to come to Him. Whosoever wills in sincerity and truth to come to Him who's drawn by His Spirit, He will save you and He can save you today. If you hear His voice today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. You don't know when your last day will be. If I haven't emphasized it enough today, resurrection is a reality but man, if you're not in that, if you're not in the resurrection comfort, you don't know when your last day will be. I've been emphasizing this is a decaying world. This is a dying world. You're dying already. You're on your way there. And it's only a matter of time. Don't reject the call of salvation, brothers and sisters. Don't reject the call of salvation, unbelievers. That's what I meant. Run to Jesus Christ. Run to Jesus Christ. Don't reject this. Don't reject this. There's resurrection comfort to be had for human beings, for sinful human beings in this life, in death. And only because 
Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Come to him. He's declaring it here to you. I am the resurrection and the life. And I invite you and I call you to come to me. If you do, you'll find that he will be your comfort in life and in death. You'll know that you're not your own. You were bought with a price. There's tremendous hope and there's resurrection comfort for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, God, I thank you so much for the gospel of grace. Thank you so much, Lord, that the power of God is displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we can have hope for salvation. We can have forgiveness of sin and guilt. We do not have to perish. but Instead, we can have everlasting life. But I pray that you'd please move. Please work in the hearts of those who do not yet know you. Who do not yet taste of this resurrection comfort. And humble each of us, Lord. Humble our hearts this evening to remember how great of a gift we've received, how great of an eternal gift we've received. And so then, let us consider all of our wealth, all of our time, everything that we have as easy to give up in exchange for eternity, easy to spend for your kingdom. God, I pray that you would please be gracious to us and keep your face shining upon us. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.